Are you on the hunt for a perfect gift? Well, this year, give your loved one a gift that never goes out of style and will last forever. Give them a lifetime hunting or fishing license. A lifetime license just might be the best gift they ever receive. The Minnesota DNR offers a variety of lifetime licenses that include fishing, small game, sportsman, deer hunting, and more. Costs vary by age, and it really pays off big time to purchase a lifetime license for youngsters. Get this, a lifetime license purchase for a Minnesotan age three or younger will pay itself off in about 15 years. That means from about age 30 on, their fishing license will be free the rest of their life. If they move out of state, their license is still valid when they come back forever. My kids have lifetime sportsman's licenses. And last year we bought one for my nephew and my dad too. I just can't think of a better gift to give to someone that loves the outdoors. The memories that we make together in the field and on the water are priceless. A lifetime license makes the outdoors accessible forever. Learn more at mndnr.gov slash lifetime. That's mndnr.gov slash lifetime. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Minnesota Bound podcast, the stories behind the stories. I'm Laura Shera, your host for today. And our next guest, Meadow Kaufeld, is um, a local Minnesota young woman. And she is originally from Northern California. But I met Meadow at um, a women's hunt. I think it was a couple years ago now. But her, she was sharing her story. And I found all the things she does so fascinating, in, uh, including taxidermy, um, she's a taxidermy artist. She has traveled the world with her sister on massive big game hunts. And uh, she's also a dog trainer and is a mentor to many young hunters. And I wanted to have her on the podcast. Meadow, welcome to the Minnesota Bound Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Laura. Looking forward to it. Well, I feel like I, your introduction wasn't even enough because I know that you have so many more irons in the fire other than what I just mentioned. But um when I first met you at the women's hunt that we were doing, um, that was for a Minnesota Bound episode, and it was called Why Women Hunt, and I was chatting with you about all the things that you do, I was like, this woman is fascinating. Um, you are an incredible huntress, mentor, and uh, you train dogs, and you also are an incredible taxidermy artist. So... I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> so you originally grew up, at, let's start where you grew up. You originally grew up in Northern California, is that right? Yeah. So I grew up in a town called Igo, California. It's about 500 people when I was growing up, uh, just outside of Redding in the foothills of the Trinity Mountains. And I spent, you know, the first 25 years of my life between Shasta and Humboldt counties. So I am actually got my wildlife degree at Humboldt State on the coast over there. And was fortunate to work all over the West Coast. And when it got about time to go to graduate school, I was in New Mexico. And I recalled that I had worked or spent time with Rocky Gutierrez at one of our wildlife conferences. He studied grouse and I like hunting birds. So I reached out to Rocky and sure enough, he was retiring, but he had one more spot for a final graduate student. And I was that student. So that's what brought me to Minnesota. (laughs) Wow. So you've been here since 2008. Yep. Incredible. And where did, did you grow up hunting? You know, being in Northern California, there's not as much opportunity there. Um, and so we're who surprised. Ta- is Sorry. there? Okay. Yeah. Um, California is a sleeper state. I think uh, people outside of that state um, really, again, that's a kind of a stereotype state, uh, but a lot of it's rural and we have... Uh, some pretty amazing opportunities up there, including three species of elk. You know, it's just a a cool state. Other than, you know, some of the legal restrictions regarding firearms and some of the political stuff that you see on TV, it's uh, actually a pretty great state with a lot of opportunities. And um, actually, my father moved to America, moved to California in part to hunt and own firearms. He's originally from the Netherlands. And so he's who got us started and he started us at a very young age. That's incredible. So was your first hunting experience in California? Yeah. So, you know, um, I think this is kind of weird and it's about that time of year, but I think one of the earliest memories I have was maybe I was five or six and I was 
hunting around the yard with a 22 and wondering if birds had Christmas too. <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> that it. it was kind of not a good thing to be hunting birds on Christmas. So. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. You know what? I, I literally just walked in the door from pheasant hunting and um, obviously it is, we're recording this very close to Christmas and that thought didn't cross my mind, but I should have thought of that. That's a great thought to have, especially as a young girl. Um, and well, so you grew up hunting in California and um, what was your first big game hunting experience? Uh, well, it was deer, so blacktail deer, and then shortly thereafter, bear. But when I was really young, you know, we had been dragged along on just about everything. So um, feral pigs, bear and deer primarily. And then I re- another early memory I had was pronghorn up in northeastern California. Excellent. So is it fairly easy to actually get a tag or license in Not anymore. Uh, A tag, so it depends. There's plenty of over-the-counter tags. So like the B-Zone tags, which is typically what I hunt when I go back to California. I go every two years. This year was my year. Uh, Those are over-the-counter. And so that's a blacktail tag. But if you wanted to, say, draw for muzzleloader, which is a late season hunt, maybe takes over 20 years, uh, elk, sheep, those sorts of tags take a long time to draw. And then some of the higher preference points, trophy units for muzzleloader, Mule deer and muzzleloader often take a long time. But if you wanted to go, just about anybody, you know, it's you buy a hunting license and then you uh, start thinking about putting in for tags. uh, And I think the draw deadline is in June. So if you don't draw a preference tag, there's plenty of over-the-counter tags that you can get. Um, But, you know, when I was a kid, you could buy two. Now you have to buy one in advance because they're starting to sell out. So things are definitely changing in that state as well. Very interesting. And what was your... Uh, decision to get a wildlife ecology and conservation um, biology degree? You know, the interesting thing is I've always loved wild animals, especially birds. And when I was a kid, you know, that was, I I spent a lot of time watching and and, uh, hunting, as you would say, you know, kids walking around the yard with a BB gun, even though when you're a kid, you don't know any better. But um, so I spent a lot of time as a child uh, observing wildlife. And then I never knew that it was a profession or a field of study until my senior year in high school. And we had to job shadow people. And I honestly just decided to follow one of my friends on his job shadow. And he job shadowed a wildlife biologist that worked for a private timber industry uh, out there. And it was this aha moment, my senior year of high school, like, this is a job. This is what I want to do. I can't believe it exists. And from then on, I was very focused. So it was uh, funny that it came just in that one chance encounter with another wildlife biologist. That is so, that's amazing. That's when you know it's destined to be. Yeah. And so you're, you and your sister, I do know this about you, that you, the two of you have traveled around the globe in some hunting adventures together. And there's been a few trips that to me have been so impressive that you have gone to some very remote locations around the globe and have somewhat just been kind of dropped off into the middle of the nowhere with you and your sister on some hunting excursions. Um, where is your furthest destination that you've gone in your hunting expeditions? Man, I feel like... There are three of them that are literally on the other side of the earth that we've gone to. <laughs> uh, the farthest probably is either New Zealand or, or Kyrgyzstan. Um, and then there's South uh, Africa. But, you know, honestly, I've never looked up the distance. I just know that Kyrgyzstan was exactly 12 hours away, like time-wise. Wow. And then New Zealand was either the day before or the day after and plus six hours. So <laughs> it's hard to say, but those are kind of the farthest uh, distances that, you know, as far as travel time uh, took. And what were you hunting on those expeditions? Well, Kyrgyzstan, I was, it was the first international hunt we did, which is a big stretch. And honestly, I was really worried that my sister was going by herself. So I decided to go along as her observer. And that was for mid-Asian Ibex. And wow. uh, we actually ended up having another woman that was in that group. There was us and then this other lady. And um, she was with uh, along for Marco Polo and uh, Mid-Asian Ibex, or the Tian Shan Argali. It's kind of our, Marco Polo is a catch-all term. 
And uh, then, yeah, New Zealand was, we were down there visiting friends primarily, but um, ended up hunting chamois, um, taking a helicopter up into the Alpine zone and then foot hunting chamois. And then Africa was a plains game hunt uh, outside of Port Elizabeth. What was it like doing, getting dropped off by the helicopter? And then how many days were you out there? Uh, Well, we were, I want to say we were in 14 days in New Zealand um, in July and August this year. Maybe it was a little shorter, but either day, either way, um, we it was really awesome. So New Zealand, we were on the South Island. It absolutely did not disappoint. I don't know about you, but I've always, you know, you'd kind of dream of places and visiting yes. these places you see, but you don't really know what it's like until you're there. And, and certainly there was no disappointment. We were on the West Coast in a town called Haast, which is really small. To give you an idea of how small the town is, there's three children in their school. <laughs> really? Yeah. So very small. Wow. And then they have to go to boarding school after a certain point, but uh, it's right on the ocean. Um, or is it the Tasman Sea? But uh, either way, you go from ocean level, which is you've got more kind of temperate to tropical or temperate rainforest, a lot of panga, which are those giant tree ferns and lots of epiphytes. So like a big tree will have 20 or 30 different species of plants growing on it. Um, And then you go from what looks like Hawaii, right? So it's this big, steep, thickly forested mountains. And then you pop up into the alpine and it's suddenly snow covered and there are no woody trees up that high or any shrubs. It's like um, you're looking at like agave species and grasslands and it's snow covered. And that's where the chamois live as well as the tar, which we didn't see tar, but the chamois were really spectacular animals to see and hunt. That's incredible. Are they, are those, I'm going to assume the answer is yes, but are they difficult to hunt? Um, you know, they, it's, you have to be able to make a longer shot because they're out in the open, typically bedded on like a rock outcropping or a place out of the wind. And there's no, not much cover up that high. And, and typically you want to be above them because they spend most of their time looking downhill. <laughs> so, oh, okay. so we got dropped off on one ridge and we worked the, throughout the day, ridge over ridge until we found, um, one and, then we close the distance. And so you're looking at like a 300 yard shot. That's incredible. Now, are you camping up, like spending overnights and camping for days? You know what's, uh, so maybe you'll be disappointed in me, but no. No, trust um, me. <laughs> I don't, the fact that you're going that far is yeah. incredible. So. so if you get weathered in, so the helicopter pilots there have like 10 to 15,000 hours of flight time they're spectacularly talented and experienced but there are the winds up that high can be you know basically keep you from getting picked up or if it socks in so they can't see and so my sister on a previous trip has had to spend the night on the mountain she said it was very cold <laughs> I bet I bet so, yep yeah. wow fascinating and what is the desire do you think to travel to these you know these destinations I don't think many, um, you know, those trips are extensive to plan and to find the right location and all of that, but just the desire, what, it, what is it about traveling to these locations that keeps you going? Well, you know, there, there are quotes that are written about it. Uh, Hemingway has a great one uh, about hunters around the world, all being the same people. And for me, it's, uh, when I went to Kyrgyzstan, it was this big, scary distance and this scary country that I've never been to. And you only hear negative things about the stands, you know, from my narrow perspective previous to going. And when I went there and I spent time with those people, um, you know, and you lived with them, you hunted with them. It was kind of like this awakening experience that, you know, the world really is small. These people are very much like us and, Mm. you know, they're hunters too. A hunter is a hunter. And so it was that. And then also as a wildlife biologist, you know, I teach at the college here. It What fascinates me too is how people manage their animals and how they perceive them. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of a fascinating aspect. And then just seeing different places, eating different food, spending time. So when you you travel, your average person travels, they pay and they stay in a resort or they pay for a tourist experience. When you travel and you hunt, you end up spending some pretty intimate time with people who are similar in mindset to you 
in their realm. And so it's a different experience. It's very authentic in my experience, uh, spending time with these people. So you really get a different feel for a culture and its people when you do something like hunt or maybe some other sort of recreational experience where it requires a guide that you spend a lot of time with. So that, that really drives me. And then just, I don't know if it's in our blood or what, but this drive to see and experience the world and try and enjoy life while you still can in the way Mm -hmm. that you want to. So, yeah, I don't really know if there's any one thing, but, you know, I would also say that I've got a sister who is just as driven to experience life. And that really helps to have a partner that's, that's strong and brave. Yes. (laughs) Courageous. My sister's a Cal fire captain. So she's as a fire captain, she's one of the strongest people I know, much less strongest woman I know. That's incredible. Yeah, she's she's pretty epic. And so uh, I'm really fortunate to have her in my life because she pushes me beyond my conservative comfort levels often. Well, how great that you can share it, these experiences together. And I, you know, I agree with you when you immerse yourself into um, the world of um, a hunting guide or even a fishing guide, you really do. I feel like you're closer to the culture within Mm -hmm. if it's a different country or even if it's um, the culture of the lake, (laughs) you know, if you're spending time with that guide and you really learn about the topography of that lake or even the land. But also, of course, if you're traveling outside the country, um, I think you have a better sense of the realness of um, how they live, how they cook and um, get to know and appreciate other cultures in a more intimate manner um, than if you're doing a tourist excursion. But um, how do you find your hunting trips? And I, um, I, for me too, I've been looking at, I try to do one big adventure every year. And so I find myself even being in the industry, still kind of searching online for um, certain experiences or guides or things like that. And you just don't know, especially being female, I guess I will say too, on what, would be the best choice and um, make sure it's a, a safe environment wherever, whatever country you're choosing to go to. How do you find your trips? Well, I think my sister, uh, you know, we got lucky first off on the first trip. Um, she met the outfitter online um, and she reached out to this person. And it, luckily we were safe. Everything turned out fine in Kyrgyzstan. There are a few hairy moments, but we sure. made contacts on that trip that we uh, were able to use to vouch for other outfitters or guides elsewhere. Um, So for example, my sister's friend too in New Zealand, uh, her partner is an outfitter in New Zealand. They have Awatari safaris and they also work for Alpine Helicopters, which is a big helicopter company on the South Island. And so those two are really connected into the trade shows and know a lot of other folks. Plus her partner, Gus, has hunted all over the world as well. So when we say wanted to go to Hungary to hunt roe deer, my sister asked Gus. Gus gave us a list of names, one of them that we had met at the Dallas Safari Club uh, convention in Dallas. So we went with that person. And then then future, you know, you ask this person, you ask that person, once you start networking, and meeting a few people, then you can kind of get a feel for how safe uh, or how reliable another outfitter would be. Yes. And that's kind of, if I can get some positive feedback from somebody else on this particular individual, it makes me feel a lot more confident. And and certainly, you know, especially when you're traveling abroad, um, you know, there's, as a woman, uh, it does make it a little more difficult uh, to, to, you know, and typically you want to, you don't want to go alone. And I hate to say that because mm-hmm. I don't want to discourage anyone from those experiences. You know, there's risk in driving to work every single day. Sure. Uh, and if you're smart about it, I think that you can reduce some of that risk. But again, uh, it's networking. And, uh, you know, if you find something you're interested in, try and find somebody who has experience with that outfitter, a previous client or someone who knows someone who's, who's gone with them. That's great advice. I, um, because I, I almost wish there was some sort of, and maybe there is a website or, um, an agency, if you will, that does a lot of vetting and kind of has a list of opportunities depending on where you maybe want to travel to or where you might be heading to. 
Because um, sometimes, you know, for instance, I was traveling to Hawaii and um, and I was looking for an experience there that would be something different or unique that I hadn't done or tried before. And you really just have to start digging on mm-hmm. Google yourself versus having kind of a one place where they could vet some of these places out. Cause some of these adventures are not um, inexpensive either. Yeah. So you want to make sure you're investing dollars with a um, wonderful guiding experience, I guess. So that is good advice to go yeah, to some of know, these conventions. There are a lot of ladies that do a lot more international hunting, way more than um, my sister or I. And so the other thing is, is that, you know, once you've met a few of those women um, or even read their materials or, or, you know, maybe you belong to Safari Club International or um, Dallas Safari Club, those are places where, you know, especially if a woman has been and maybe you reach out to them, oftentimes they're very generous with information and honest about Mm -hmm. their experiences on a one-on-one basis. Very cool. It's no secret. I am a fan of Connecticut water. In fact, the entire Shirk family are fans. You know, we've been at the cabin this fall to rake leaves and pull the dock. Now we're into hunting season. Lakes are starting to ice up. And that means Connecticut water in the woods. Last summer, we were lucky enough to add Connecticut water at the cabin. And what a difference it has made. For as long as I can remember, we've dealt with that stinky, foul well water. But really, after a painless four-hour installation, we had Connecticut soft water and also Connecticut's K5 drinking system. No more bottled water at the cabin to try and make early morning coffee before fishing. We get great drinking water right out of the K5 tap. Our laundry no longer smells funky, and Connecticut water cleaned up the showers and also our dishes. The world's most efficient worry-free water system. Visit Connecticut.com to find a dealer near you and join the Connecticut family. Also, a big shout-out to our friends at Heat Hog. Heat Hog, the hottest name in portable propane heaters. More reliable, wider heat area, and packed with features for hunting, camping, fishing, tailgating, workshops, and job sites. Tired of melted ice at your feet in your pop-up ice shelter? Heat Hog is the only heater with adjustable tilt that sends the heat exactly where you want it. Heat your body, not just your feet. You want more features? Heat Hog keeps your fuel warm for longer runtime per tank. Plus, these portable units blast heat to a 33% wider area than the competition. With three different models to choose from, there is a Heat Hog just the right size for you to get easy to use, portable, reliable heat. Stay warmer longer with Heat Hog. Visit heathog.com and order one today with free shipping. Heat Hog, the only one that tilts. Hey there, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. Propane, it's clean, efficient fuel produced right here in the United States. Schedule your propane service with a friend. Lakes Gas, a family-owned provider serving the upper Midwest for more than 60 years. 54 convenient locations in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Now with offices in North Dakota and South Dakota too. Lakes Gas employees live in the communities they serve, so you can expect personalized service from professionals. Oh, and the Lakes Gas offers competitive pricing without all the extras that tend to drive up fuel prices. Safe, dependable service. Lakes Gas, the right choice for your home, business, or farm. Visit lakesgas.com and join the family. And besides all these very unique hunting excursions that you and your sister take together. You are also a taxidermy artist and you have been for 20 years. Um, What, you know, what was the decision making behind getting into taxidermy work? Well, my dad did it when he was going through technical school in the Netherlands. And so, you know, he always kind of talked about it. We were aware of it. We had taxidermy in the house. We had a friend that was a taxidermist. So 
when you say 20 years, I'm talking, well, that's, most of that's backyard taxidermy. So I went on a weekend after I moved to Humboldt State, I had a surf scoter I had shot and I checked out the, from the library and went to the hardware store. I had ordered like a set of eyes and a body and I bought the stuff I needed to and I put that bird together. Um, so I was self-taught and I continued to do wow. stuff for myself or for the college or, you know, family. You can't charge when you don't have a license. Um, and so that's where it kind of started. And um, it wasn't until COVID hit and some life circumstances hit that required I kind of branched out uh, for a little more financial stability that I sought to get additional education in taxidermy, some specific training. Um, and that was something that also benefited the college because a lot of the specimens I was mounting uh, really improved after that training. And so now, um, obviously, in the last three or four years, my work has really improved. And so I feel comfortable having clients now. Yeah, I mean, you sent me some pictures of your work. It is incredible. I mean, it's looks amazing. And you have clients. Did you, you just told me before we hopped on recording here that you're actually heading to California with yeah. some work. Yeah, they're, they're my sister's animals from her Spain trip. And I unfortunately didn't get to go on that trip because she she booked it without asking when my winter break started. Oh, shoot. <laughs> so it was like a, she went during finals week, so I couldn't leave. Oh, no. And your sister's name is Maggie. So yeah, Maggie, yeah. next time. <laughs> yeah, she, so that was a bummer. My mom ended up going on that trip. But, um, oh, I but yeah, so I have her Eurasian wild boar, a Basidi ibex, and a Pyrenean chamois or chamois. Uh, that are all shoulder mounts that are going back and then a black tail for a friend who lives in New Zealand. And she's picking it up in California. Yeah. So she actually moved to New Zealand from California. Um, okay. After she, so if you ever go there, you may not want to come back. New Zealand, New I've Zealand heard. is spectacular. Everyone I know that has been there is like weaseling their way back or how they can live there someday. Uh, <laughs> that's so on my list to go it, and visit. It, and It's very idealistic. <laughs> it, I've, I had an opportunity to do a red stag hunt in New Zealand and I had everything booked, ready to go right during 2020, right when COVID hit, everything shut down and there went that opportunity. So I feel like I need to get that back on the, on the books. Um, yeah. cause I've heard wonderful things about New Zealand. If you go try and go to the South Island, it's just spectacular. I mean, spellbinding, it's hard to explain without ex experiencing it. Really? Yeah. It's, okay. we, you know, we, we drove from, you know, basically to the East coast to the West coast and like a little southward. And, uh, man, some of the country you drive through is really beautiful. And then the diversity along the coast, like I said, with the vegetation, uh, is really neat, but the animals, it's such a different place because there are no carnivores, like no big ones. Mm -hmm. So the largest carnivore on that South Island was a feral cat and really? um, yeah, so when like a sheep, so a domestic sheep dies, they are nearly fully articulated uh, at times. Their skeletons are like, it's all there. Wow. And the skull is laying like it fell, you know, it was, it's just really a bizarre experience as somebody who's used to intact systems. And of course, you know, the, the largest bird they have is a harrier, a, a carnivorous bird is a harrier, which is eating primarily mice and small birds and then the kia which is an alpine parrot they do eat a little bit of carry-on um but uh yeah it's really a bizarre experience and and that because of the lack of carnivores they manage those non-native species like red stag tar and chamois very different than you or i would imagine in north america or say europe how they're they're managed there Okay. Very interesting. How are they different than the U.S. in their management practices? Well, they're non-native. So um, kind of, you know, we would think of them as a feral species. And sure. so uh, there are no, there's no hunting tags uh, for those three species. Um, and, you know, the hunting structure is different because you're hunting under, say, an outfitter's hunting license. And it takes uh, quite a bit of effort, much like European countries, to get a hunting license in New Zealand. So um, we were fortunate to be able to hunting to hunt underneath our uh, friend's outfitting license. And uh, anyways, it's uh, the other thing is they do a lot of aerial venison gunning. So uh, instead of just letting the red stag 
uh, continue to populate, they actually reduce their numbers and sell the venison uh, in markets. And so what they're doing is they're flying in helicopters with a shotgun and shooting them from the helicopter. And then they come back, gut them, and then they sling them off the mountain and then they go to um, to market, essentially. It's kind of like, uh, you know, like we would harvest beef, but at sure. a more, more dramatic manner. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Still free range and organic for sure. Well, you yep. know, and I was, I did some hunting um, for access deer in Hawaii and they, it's the same issue, I guess, over there that the um, access deer, there isn't a carnivore and there's not even a bird of prey that will eat a carcass. So they've had some um, management issues of access deer uh, over in Hawaii and their hunting seasons year round. And mm-hmm. they're now um, there's, Maui Venison, I believe, is a new company that did get a license to harvest the deer um, to manage the population that they're able to turn that around and sell it direct to consumer. Uh, It's a brand new company that just started, but they're also trying to do their work to make sure they're managing populations because a lot of like the seabirds and they Mm -hmm. where they nest, um, some of the axis deer is just eating away all their their um, where they their habitat. So it's very interesting. Especially in islands, you know, both of those countries, or well, the state and the country, uh, just the the islands are so sensitive to damage, and that's the the tar that's really damaging to those high alpine environments. Same same uh, issues though with endemic birds and losing their habitat, plus sensitive plant species. So it's it's a it's an important thing. It's just not something that um, is normally within our radar to have to cull actively cull large amounts of animals uh, mm-hmm. in order to preserve the habitat. So true. Uh, and with your taxidermy, I'm always fascinated. You know, this is, I feel like the taxidermy artistry seems to be, you find less and less people just newly getting into taxidermy. And um, is it, do you find that there is still an increase in people that are wanting to have animals mounted? Or are you finding that it's more of a... I don't want to say it's a, a dying art, but is it something that you find that's fewer and far between where people are um, not participating in as a taxidermist or people are not wanting to have their animals mounted anymore? How, what does that look like for you? Well, you know, I've only been taking clients on for a few years, so I really don't have a baseline that's any different. Sure. You know? But, um, you know, I also the other thing is with social media, it feels like there are a lot of young taxidermists that are very talented. They're spread across the United States, but, sure. um, you know, it's hard to say because there's still a wide range uh, in the quality of taxidermists and the ages of taxidermists. Um, and That's I know good. that there's probably fewer than there used to be. People do say it's a dying art, but I don't think so. I, I feel like some of the taxidermy that's being done now some of the techniques that have been developed and the materials, it's just so spectacularly beautiful and precise mm-hmm. um, and that it's actually gotten so much better in the last decade or 20 years than it used to be. The stuff that you and I grew up with, you know, bulging eyes and yes, <laughs> you know, falling apart <laughs> clay and things like so that. True. It's such an, uh, I mean, there's still people that do bad taxidermy. But I think that uh, especially the younger taxidermists that are really paying attention to um, different methods. And the other thing, social media isn't always great, but people are able to share new methods and new techniques so much more efficiently that it's really improved the quality of um, some of the taxidermy work that we've seen, I think, in the last 30 years. Um, And so there's, I think, a lot of talent and a lot of hope for the future of taxidermy it's not for everybody but you know you think about it uh there are still a lot of people who uh cherish taxidermy and i'm i'm sure most people could agree that when i look at any single mount in my house it takes me right back to that moment Mm -hmm. that experience who i was with i can you know it sounds cheesy but i could even smell the the grass or mm. you know the forest or it's really just an immersive experience to look at them and it just kind of brings you back and I think that people still value that that's something that humans have been cherishing for twenty thousand plus years depending on how you look at the history of the earth 
you know, since painting cave paintings and retaining any sort of, you know, a lot of people through human history have retained bits and pieces of animals as trophies, uh, Mm -hmm. as memorials, you know, medicine bags, things along those lines. So taxidermy is just along those lines. It's not, I don't think too much different than a lot of humans in history have perceived retaining a piece of the animal to remember that hunt or to document that hunt on a cave wall. Um, So it's really, it's a very primitive thing, but. uh, Yeah. You know what? That's a good, I've not thought of it that way. Um, I've definitely thought of the storing storytelling aspect and the memory aspect of it, but you are right of the retaining of a part of that hunt that stays with you um, does that is very a primal aspect of who we are. Um, Mm -hmm. that's very interesting. And, you know, I, I'm looking at some of the pictures that you had sent and is there from a taxidermist, um, perspective, is it much harder to mount a bird with all their feathers versus big game or are they about the same amount of work? Um, I think birds would be really difficult. Birds are very difficult and there, you know, there's a lot of people that don't want to do birds because they are, they are difficult, you know, and if you do whitetail, for example, there are so many forms and form is the foam core that's in the middle of of the the mount. And if you look at a form, it looks like a naked deer, right? There's uh, no ears, no antlers, but the shape is there. And so because whitetail are so common, you can order a form that comes pretty close to fitting the skin of your animal if you take the right measurements. Um, you get to something more obscure like that ibex or the chamois or um, even that uh, Eurasian boar, then you're looking at doing a lot of modifications. So that takes more work when you have a more rare big game species. But birds, birds you're starting off with like a foam football and uh Granted, there are some pretty high-end um, bird bodies that I use that I come close. But just like you or I, within a single species, there's a lot of variation in size and shape even. And so there's a lot of modification based on the carcass. And then you're building this this bird up ba- from the ground, basically, uh, and creating, recreating what's underneath that, that skin, those feathers to try to support that animal. So, and then the other thing about birds is they're really difficult to flesh without destroying mm. the skins. And then their skin is so thin and their feathers are so hard to clean that they're very tedious. And so 80 to 90% of the work for some people, mostly it's 80% is the work prior to sewing the bird up. Um, wow. So if you do a lot of work on the front end, uh, the, the end of it comes together a lot easier, but it is certainly uh, something that, a lot of people don't like doing because it is a lot of work and there's so much variation uh, in that process. That's fascinating. On like on average, how many hours does it take you to mount a oh, duck? Or... Well, it depends on the species. Okay. So I did a woodcock um, just the other day, and, and that's small. Well, their skin is so thin too. I don't know if you've plucked one before, but they tear so easily. Yeah, they're oh my like goodness. Wet wet tissue paper with a little bit of elasticity in there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it took a long time to skin it. It already had some shot damage in it. And then they're so, the skin is so thin, you have to use your fingernail to take the fat off of it and a small, like a, a wire brush. And wow. so you have several hours into just fleshing, skinning and fleshing the bird, which is a small bird. And then you have to wash it in a sink for you know, two or three cycles. So you're trying not to tear it and then you have to dry it and try not to tear it. And then, and then you have to put the clay in the head and invert the head. There's all different points in time where if you have one careless moment, you can either create a lot of work for yourself or make it unmountable. So you have a lot of hours into something you could easily destroy um, up until the very end when you're say injecting feet and I've had a syringe explode on me and explode all over the bird and ruin the mouth, oh, you know. No. So things happen, but it's, yeah, it's very tedious. And uh, so a woodcock, I think I had 12 hours into that bird, wow. uh, which is excessive. And then my average grouse or duck, eight to 10 hours, a swan, 23 to 26 hours. Um, so just to give you an idea on the range of time it takes. And I know there are people that are faster. Um, and I, I'm just, it's not something I do 
um, multiple times a day, every day. But uh, I don't foresee ever being much faster. I can make some efficiencies here and there, but usually it's, you know, eight to 10 for a grouse up to, you know, 23, 26 hours for a swan. And each bird has its own challenges too. So it's really hard to come up with an exact number. And that is why your work looks as beautiful as it does. I think just from your time that you take to get it all correct, but there's a lot of pressure in that because there's only one. It's not yes. like you have a backup if something goes wrong. No, and um, it's really, it's a lot of pressure because sometimes those animals are super important. Um, maybe the person has passed away mm-hmm. or um, it's a child's first or, you know, it's your buddy's last trip. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's all of these emotional ties to taxidermy. Uh, and then the other is, maybe it's rare. Last year, I had a leucistic hen golden eye that was not quite in great plumage. And, you know, that is a very rare bird, maybe the only one I ever see. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure in preserving someone's memory. And then also the rarity, like my sister Shami is 18 years old, and it's very wow. gray in the face. And so that's not a cape that can be replaced very easily. And I don't like the idea of replacing people's skins or capes or birds with another one because sometimes it's not legal for one. And then two um, is that it's just not the same animal. And so it's kind of deceptive, I think, sometimes to, to change it out, especially if you're not uh, sharing that you're going to do that with that person. That is, I, my hands would be trembling the whole time I'd be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, this isn't for me. I can't. I'll poke a hole in something by accident or uh, for sure not get it right. But that is really impressive. You must have so much patience. I have to check myself uh, for patience. I do, especially with the woodcock uh, and things like that. I have to walk away um, to regain focus. And mm. you, you just, I'll catch myself forcing myself to try and get through something. And that's when you make mistakes. And sometimes you just have to walk away. But uh, I would say that, yes, I'm more patient than most people when it comes to something like that. Incredible. North Dakota tourism. We are already talking about ice fishing, but you know what? The fall hunting season is not even close to being over, which is why I want to talk to you a little bit about North Dakota, because North Dakota, here we come. The most recent bird counts are in from the biologists, and they report the number of pheasants observed 65 birds per 100 miles of roadway. That is up 61% from last year, and the brood numbers are up 70%. All that means is world-class upland hunting in North Dakota. Over on the waterfowl side, 2023 was one of the wettest springs that state has had on record. That means an estimated 3.4 million breeding ducks. That number is also up from last year. You add to that North Dakota's plots program, which includes 800,000 acres of private land that is open to public walk-in hunting, and you have your spot just waiting for the perfect hunt. Make memories in North Dakota. Plan your adventure just like we do at hellond.com. Also, a shout out to Star Bank. Hi, everybody. Ron Shera here again with another nifty story, this one about my favorite bank, the story of Starbank. There's 10 of them in Minnesota, but here's where the plot thickens. A star bank is more than money. A star bank cares, cares about its customers, cares about the community, whether it's town parades or the kids' baseball team. Why? Because star banks are locally owned. They treat you right. Quite a tale, wouldn't you say? How do I know? because StarBank is also our bank at Ronshare Productions. Just another story with a happy ending. StarBank, the bank that cares. Member FDIC. To learn more online, go to star.bank. This message is brought to you by the Minnesota Propane Association. Clean, affordable, reliable energy. These are all the things that people want for their homes and businesses. The one source of energy in Minnesota that can offer all of these benefits is propane. Clean. Propane produces 43% fewer emissions than the equivalent amount of the electricity generated from the U.S. grid. 
affordable. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, propane costs approximately 30% less than electricity in the U.S. The savings in Minnesota can even be higher. Reliable. Propane is energy stored on site, independent of the grid. Propane can power your home or business anytime you need it. Energy. Propane is a direct energy source used at your home or business, unlike electricity, which is produced somewhere away from your home. By the time electricity gets to your home, 66% of the energy used to produce it is lost. That is why propane is approximately three times more efficient than electricity. Propane, the right energy right now. For more information on what propane can do for you and the environment, go to propane.com. And, you know, besides, I feel like we could talk forever about all these interesting things that you um, are passionate about, but you also are, um, you have two pointing dogs. You have an English setter and a Deutsch Drathar. And I think I was out, when I was hunting with you, we had, did you have two Deutsch yeah, I had uh, Aix, the black dog, and his yes. mom, Mina, at that time. Yep. Yes. Okay. And now you have an English setter. Yep. Um, and I understand, have you been, you also do some dog training, is that correct? Yeah. You know, I used to take on client work and I don't know that I will this coming year. We'll see. Sure. Um, but it's, I've got enough taxidermy now. Uh, and so I'm kind of shifting focus that way. The thing about training other people's dogs is that um, it's, you think taxidermy might have a lot of stress associated with it. You have someone's dog. That is a mm-hmm. huge responsibility. Uh, and, you know, the whole time you're, if you know, if they get sick or they get hurt, luckily I never had that happen, but it happens. I did have one dog that got hurt jumping, uh, funny enough. But um, anyways, it's one of those things that it's a huge amount of stress, but I, I love the process. I love the dogs. It's really gratifying to take a dog that won't even come and be able to t- give it back to somebody that'll point and retrieve and, um, you know, knows their basic obedience. But yeah, right now I have, you know, Drothar. He's the one you got to hunt over, that black dog that retrieved the rooster so over cool. the water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, Both your dogs were incredibly trained, oh, like very yeah. impressive. They were, yeah, she, his mom was a great dog too. And then the mm-hmm. setter is just a different style of animal. I actually took him, we were out grouse hunting earlier today. I got a new shotgun today. So um, nice. it was a, new to me. So I needed to make sure it worked before I left and uh, went out grouse hunting and managed to scratch a bird. But it was, it's again, it's always beautiful to get out with them. And this late winter weather that we've had has just been spectacular for Isn't dogs. Isn't it fabulous? Yes. I know, to still have... 35 degrees and it's perfect temperature for dogs working and still to get out there hunting has been really, really nice. Yeah. I don't know how the ice fishermen feel about it, but <laughs> I know that's true. We were talking about that. I, um, this morning I saw two ice fishermen out on Lake Minnetonka as I was oh, driving early to, um, head to the gym. And it was only on one tiny bay that apparently to them was frozen enough um, I would never walk out on that, but the other side of the bridge I crossed, the water was completely open. So, yeah. um, I know ice fisher, ice anglers, fishermen and fisherwomen are diehards when it comes to, um, getting on that ice as soon as it's frozen. But, um, I prefer the warmer weather personally. Yeah. I just being from California, don't trust ice. Uh, and, and then I love ice fishing, but I, I'm, I will wait until I see other people out there with vehicles. Yes, I know. I'm the same way. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it's uh, funny cause I, I always worry, well, my uh, daughter's father is a conservation officer and those are the people who have to go and rescue or retrieve you. Um, if you fall through. And so that always makes me nervous to hear about the folks on Red Lake. Uh, mm. when they get blown off and stuff. I just, I know it's, just, it's a bummer. This year has been so late. I know a lot of the resorts uh, depend on yes that season for income. That is true. And all the snowmobile, uh, snowmobilers yes. as well. And they're not happy without uh, having snow. Um, but I hear you on the ice situation. When my boyfriend Dan and I were in Alaska, we spent the night on the Matanushka Glacier. Oh. And growing up, you know, you'd hear ice gurgling or crack and, you know, we grew up on a pond and we were probably on it, um, till the bitter end, you know, right when the ice was melting. And, um, so having that childhood, you know, you hear ice cracking and it's still, 
scares me. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is, but <laughs> on that glacier, that it's really cracking underneath you. It is loud. It's groaning. It's gurgling. And at any moment, you just feel that um, it's just going to swallow you. And it doesn't, of course. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have people sleeping on it. But we, you know, you sleep in a tent on this glacier and no one's really around you if um, to, you know, I guess soothe you if all of a sudden you're like is that crack just a little too loud this time yeah. but yeah it's rumbling uh when you say on the the glacier but it brought me back to my childhood being on the pond where you just hear mm-hmm. those the gurgling underneath that ice you're like oh boy i never even thought about how noisy they would be because they're slowly moving across the surface of the earth a big chunk of ice that is really fascinating well what was really it sounds like white water rapids underneath you. It sounds like a rushing, roaring river all day long underneath Was you there on the glacier. Creek in it or a river in there? Sometimes there are. Yes. There oh, are yeah. areas where they have these pools of water and they're um the most crystal blue. You feel like you've been transplanted into a different planet when you mm-hmm. head out onto this glacier because the water is so blue. And there's actually a lack of scent hmm. out on the glacier because nothing <laughs> grows. Yeah. So when you get back to the mainland, your sense of smell is really heightened because you've been without any scent really for um, a few days. But what I also found, you drink all your water from the glacier. So some of the water you're drinking uh, could be anywhere from like 200 to 300 years old by the time it gets down to where we were because the glacier's uh, 27 miles long. It takes a long time for it to get all the way down to where we were. And, um, but algae still finds a way to grow on the glacier. Is Don't know how that's pink? possible. It's black. Oh, black. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I know. Super interesting. I mean, I, I just love our planet and all the, um, the interesting things that our environment, um, has and how everything fits together. And, um, that's what, one of those things where we were out with a guide and that's where you really are immersed into an experience that mm-hmm. um, you learn so much because they, you know, that's their backyard every single day. Mm-hmm. So they're able to really share with you um, some extensive, interesting things about the environment and the daily happenings in those places. But, um, and um you also, speaking of teaching, et cetera, you have a young daughter that is also a young outdoor lady at this point. How old is she now? She's 10. She's 10. And do you have her out uh, with you on trips and in the woods? Yeah. So I, I did take her to Hungary with us because we visited family in the Netherlands afterward. Okay. But she, uh, you know, she's my boat companion and grouse hunting uh, recently she got to go pheasant hunting too. And, you know, Good obviously, um, it was her first year deer hunting. She killed two deer this year. Good for uh, her. She killed her dad's archery tag. And then she shot a deer, uh, when I was with her the second week in a deer season. Awesome. Um, so yeah, she's, she's, uh, get, got a lot of awesome opportunities between myself and her father. I'm and sure. then, uh, Hoping, looking forward to, not just hoping, but looking forward to sharing some of the more epic trips later on in life. It just makes it more expensive when you got one more person. So <laughs> That is true. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Um, but I don't, you know, the honest truth though is um, I, when I was in New Zealand, it was like, I really did, wasn't quite the same not sharing that trip with her. Mm. And so that uh, was a kind of a moment. It's like, you know, I'm going to have to make a point to bring her when I can because it's just gotten to the point where... It means more if I can share it with her than if I just do it with my sister and myself. Absolutely. And is, um, are you finding that she is just naturally enjoying it? I know some kids, they, you know, they'll take along, they're not so sure. And maybe they get into it immediately. Maybe it's not until later in life. Um, obviously each child is so independently different. Is she, are you finding that she's just really passionate about it as much as you are? You know, it's, um, I try not to push it because I know my dad didn't push it and just give lots of opportunities, you know, and, and encourage them. To go. And she, she gets deer fever. So I, I saw her get deer fever and I've seen her get fever over at grouse when she was really young. So I know that, that, that interest, that, um, that certain level of interest is there because of the, I can see it hurt in her reactions when we're hunting. Mm-hmm. And um, so watching her shoot her deer uh, this year was just uh, kind of like, I'm, 
I know we're headed in the right direction there. You can never really tell because people change as they grow, but I think, I think so. I hope so. And I think so. Oh, I bet she will. It's, um, that's such great advice that you give. And there are times when I'm approached by parents that ask me, um, what my dad did with both my sister and I growing up and how to, um, you know, introduce young kids to the outdoors without overdoing it specifically if they're younger and not sure about hunting and obviously there's death there. So, um, that could be a sensitive topic with kids, but, um, he did the same thing you're doing and really just offered a lot of opportunities, but didn't necessarily, um, push it per se. Mm -hmm. And there might, there may have been a couple times he pushed it, I guess. Well, there's appropriate out there. kind of read, you know. <laughs> yes. Where we may have been out in the fishing boat, maybe a couple, two hours too long, but, um, and freezing. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I did a lot more fishing as a young lady. And then I kind of, I, of course, was around with all the hunting growing up, but I didn't really take that on until later in life. And, mm-hmm. um, but I'm so thankful for all the opportunities. And, you know, he always would say, let, me know when you've had enough. Yeah. And that was um, a really nice thing to have as a kid growing up that you're like, okay, I've, you know, we've been out here for a few hours and yeah. uh, we've had enough, but then uh, your young daughter is, uh, has wonderful opportunities to follow in your footsteps and sounds like she's well on her way for sure. Yeah. Now, one other thing I'd say is, you know, I make a point to have good gear for her and, um, you know, if it's miserable, I might not go, but she has, she has really pretty good gear for a kid. Uh, and then, you know, with fishing, it's extra snacks, a minnow bucket, a tackle box that needs rearranging and occasionally fishing. So yes, you know, it's, also it's like, great advice. Yes. Lots of snacks and yes. like comfort, you know, because maybe they need to take a nap or they crawl underneath where, you know, your console or something and take a nap out of the wind. Uh, it's just like, um, for me, it's sometimes you just have to be like, just let it roll. <laughs> so, so true. Yeah. No, don't have too high of expectations. <laughs> That's still, and let's all be honest, fishing can get a little boring if things are not um, biting per se. Oh, yeah. So we know you have to put your time in, but as a young kid, that can be um, pretty boring at times. So the snack bucket is definitely key there for sure. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Metal, for joining us today on the Minnesota Bound Podcast. I feel like we could continue to um, chat about your adventures and all your um passions that you have. And uh, if our listeners wanted to find you, I know you're on Instagram, um, but if they wanted to find you on Instagram, social media, website, where could they do that? Well, I think both Facebook and Instagram are just Meadow Cowfeld. You could find me that way with my name. And then my taxidermy website is woodsandmeadowllc.com. Uh, and that's right now that that site is uh, focused on taxidermy. So that'd be my rates and gallery. But I think uh, I've I don't know. I have enjoy Instagram because I like being able to tell a story with a nice photo. And so that's the fun one. Yes, I follow you on Instagram. And uh, just so our listeners know, the last name is spelled K-O-U-F-F-E-L-D. Uh, so you can find her and it's just Meadow Kaufeld on Instagram. Yep. I think so. Awesome. I think you can find me with that, like at Meadow Calfeld. I'm not 100% sure. It's been years since I paid attention to it. <laughs> I know. I know. We all just post and, is this called posting and ghosting, I guess? You just post mm-hmm. and go on your way. But, uh, well, thank you so much for sharing your stories. And um, thank you for being such a mentor to uh, other women hunters and um, young hunters. And um, I do find that. Um, when I met you, I just thought you're the most fascinating woman and all the adventures that you'd taken. And that I appreciate you taking the time to share some of those with our listeners. Well, thank you. And thank you for all you do too. You're a super positive role model for women in the state and uh, abroad. You are. Oh, I really love thank watching you. So, you. <laughs> thank you so much. And now I know I, I love that um, you were sharing on ways to find guides and things for some bigger trips. So I will reach out to you if I decide to um, make the New Zealand dream come true. And um, maybe I can follow on some of your hunting footsteps over there and some of the places that you've been. So I really appreciate that. 
Well, I would love to. And, and any day that you want to go out for a grouse hunt, let me know. I would. That You know what? I have not been grouse hunting before. And that oh, no. is on my list. I know it's embarrassing to say that. Um, I've always just, you know, went to the pheasant field, but that and quail, I've done some quail hunting too, but okay. um, I've heard how much fun grouse hunting is. So I would love to take you up on that for sure. It would be awesome. really, really fun. Well, let me know. Next year would be great. So perfect. Well, if you want to, we'll pick some good dates. So thank okay. you. Yes, <laughs> let's do that. Thanks again, Meadow. And also thanks to our sponsors, Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, Connecticut, Heat Hog, Lakes Gas, Minnesota Propane, North Dakota Tourism, and Star Bank. Last but not least, remember, introduce a kid to the great outdoors. Mm-hmm.